Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Priya Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. All of it is delivered in 50 minutes or less because you don't have time to waste. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. Today's episode is with Chip Fournier, who's a friend of mine and a lawyer and expert in HR and employment law. Currently, he is a partner in the labor and employment law firm of Curly, Hergen, and Johnsford. Prior to that, he was with NBC Universal, heading up their employment law group for 17 years. In today's episode, we get into all sorts of sticky HR situations, which frankly, we'd rather not have to deal with, but inevitably does come up in the course of duty. He shares a lot of great wisdom in dealing with your own sticky HR situations, and I hope you learn a lot. I certainly did. Enjoy. Hi, Chip. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. So, we're here today to talk about all sorts of HR issues. In your career, you've had lots of experience with HR, both in the for-profit and not-for-profit world, presumably more in the for-profit. Tell me a little bit about some of the mistakes that you've seen not-for-profits make with respect to HR law. Sure. The big difference between not-for-profits and for-profit companies when it comes to their workforce is that it's illegal for a for-profit company to allow someone to work for free. They have to be paid. In a not-for-profit, it is okay to have volunteers and have them working for free, but it's not okay to have your workforce work for free. They are still employees, and it is still a job. And although you want them to be committed to the mission of the organization, and you hope they are committed to the mission of the organization, you have to remember that they still have bills to pay. They still have families they want to spend time with. They still have a career that they are planning for and looking for job growth and professional growth of their own Mm -hmm. in the future. The flip side of that is to remember that you as a not-for-profit are an employer. And even though the mission of the organization is very valuable, you still have to comply with the employment laws. And the value of your mission does not excuse you from... Set, uh, complying with the employment laws. And I frequently see not-for-profits, especially not-for-profits that are still being run by the founder, lose sight of the fact that the mission of the organization, as important as it is, does not excuse you from complying with the employment laws and respecting the fact that your employees are still employees. What does that mean in the for-example case? For-example case would be It is time for the annual fundraising gala, and you need all hands on deck to make sure that the room is decorated appropriately, that the room is set up, that people are there to greet the guests, that the name tags are handed out. If you have non-exempt employees, that is people who are entitled to overtime, you still have to pay them overtime for helping at the gala. They may want to be there. In fact, I'm sure they do want to be there, but it's still work and you need to pay them appropriately. So that's a a common example. What about exempt employees? Exempt employees, of course, are not entitled to overtime, and the job includes whatever the job includes. So with exempt employees, you don't have to worry about paying overtime or something like that. You do need to pay attention to what is their job. If you're asking them to do something that is too far afield 
from their job and you're asking them to do it on a regular basis, then maybe you need to rethink how the job is structured or how your organization is structured. It may be that you, that you either need a new employee or you need to rethink their job description. Right. So it's about sort of good judgment. Good judgment, of course. As you know, most not-for-profits, certainly the small ones, don't have HR departments. Uh, and I think that that can often be a challenge. So can you tell us about what you think the bare minimums are with respect to HR in especially a smaller not-for-profit? There are tools that are good for a not-for-profit of any size, whether or not you have HR. Indeed, I think they're good for for for-profit companies, whether you're talking about a startup or a Fortune 50 company. I would say an employee handbook. By law in many states now, an employee handbook is required to include an EEO policy that prohibits discrimination, uh, a policy prohibiting sexual harassment, a policy that explains how employees can complain about discrimination or harassment and what the company's response will be, and an anti-retaliation policy that makes it clear to employees that if they do complain, there will be no retaliation. As I say, those are required by law in many states. In addition, I think a handbook should address work hours and absenteeism. Uh, Absence from work generally, what are you supposed to do as an employee if you're sick or if you are going to be late? It should also address paid time off, such Mm -hmm. as vacation time, sick time, holidays. How do you schedule a vacation? Uh, These are the... the, (laughs) The section of an employee handbook that is the most dog-eared that the employees go to most regularly is, how do I schedule my vacation? Depending on the nature of the not-for-profit, you may need a section on appropriate attire or workplace conduct, especially if it's a public-facing role. You may want to address payroll questions about how often do paychecks arrive, those are frequent questions that employees ask. Mm-hmm. And then you, you will probably have benefits coming from external vendors, mm-hmm. and you will have materials from the vendor that explain uh, benefits like that. But you may want to have a section that addresses certain benefits uh, and explains that, for example, health care is provided by this company, and you mm-hmm. should talk to this person about what the health care benefits are or what the retirement savings plan is, uh, what maternity benefits might be, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Quick question, because I know we're going to get into the further tools, but I'm wondering if things like employee handbooks and PTO, for example, are at odds with companies that want to be a little bit more flexible with uh, their PTO policy, for example. Like, I know a lot of tech companies talk about unlimited time off, which then sometimes translates to no time off. So how does one deal with that? You can address that in an employee handbook. Uh, the either unlimited time off or no time off for exempt employees is something that's becoming more popular. I don't think we have enough of a track record to know how well it works mm-hmm. and whether it works in a wide variety of companies. But it's an interesting concept. Uh, but I would say that some of the companies that are developing some of these more forward-looking policies are companies that are bigger and do have professional HR teams to Mm -hmm. help manage them. If you're talking about a small not-for-profit that does not have a professional HR team or an HR person at all or in-house legal, these are tools that you can easily pull off the internet and adapt to your purposes. And you can find, you can go on the internet 
right now and find many examples of employee handbooks that are applicable to the jurisdiction where you're located, whether it's New York City or San Francisco, California, or Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Those tools can make your life easier. And certainly you can pay attention to what is being developed in Silicon Valley or uh, wherever uh, that is more forward-looking with respect to time off. And maybe it will work for your organization. But you do want to have it written down. If that's going to be your policy, make sure that it's communicated to employees. And indeed, that's a lesson I would say generally is communication is key. Honest communication to employees is key. Make sure they know what the expectations are, what the rules are, and then most employees will try to follow them if they know what they are. Other tools I would suggest are uh, performance reviews. Some companies are trying to move toward a sort of constant feedback model, and I think that's great if you're able to pull it off. Many companies aren't able to pull it off because people are busy and they get distracted. I think the discipline of the annual or the semi-annual written performance review and the conversation with the employee is useful. Mm -hmm. Most people want to do a good job, and most people, if they're not told otherwise, think they are doing a good job. If they're not, somebody has to tell them how they're falling down on the job and what they need to do to improve. The annual or the semi-annual performance review is a great opportunity to do that and for the employee to get that feedback and to know how they're doing, what they're doing well, what their manager values about their what they're doing, and what the manager would like them to do differently or do better or to add to their arsenal of skills. Of course, that means that when things are going poorly, then the employee is less surprised and you avoid problems that way as well. I would say paired with performance evaluations is job descriptions. The manager and the employee both need to have a common understanding of what the job is. If you're Posting a job, if you're hiring someone new, you put together a job description so that you get the right people applying for the job. You don't get someone who's completely unqualified. People's jobs change over time. Partly that's due to promotions, but they may change just because the person grows. Uh, The needs of the organization change. And that's true in small not-for-profits in particular because people often have to do lots of different things Mm -hmm. just to keep the, the mission of the organization moving forward. You don't have to rewrite the job description, but the annual performance evaluation is an opportunity for both the manager and the employee to realize, ah, your job has changed, or I need your job to change. I need you to take on these additional responsibilities. And that's just another advantage of the, uh, the annual performance review. And then I would say a, a final tool is think about your compensation structure. Mm. Large for-profit companies in particular will get will have access to salary surveys that, that are prepared by companies that are that's what they do. Those are expensive. There are some that are available on the internet. Uh, they're not going to be customized for your particular organization or for a particular role, but you can get a lot of information about what the salary range is in your particular location for a particular type of job. Now, Sometimes that won't be focused on the not-for-profit sector, and you know, a, a, someone who's doing a job that is the same job, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, there is going to be a difference in the salary range. But that can give you some sense of 
what appropriate compensation is for someone. If you don't think in a somewhat global sense about your compensation structure, you're going to wind up paying people on an ad hoc basis, probably based on what their salary was in their previous job. Mm -hmm. And you'll wind up all over the place and you'll probably wind up overpaying some people and underpaying others. And you'll wind up wasting money on the one hand and with unhappy employees on the other hand. If you can get some professional advice on the compensation structure, that's great. If you can't, do what you can by with your own research on the internet to try to establish what the salary ranges should be for your different jobs. This is an interesting question because I think, especially in small not-for-profits, you're looking at either the executive director or another senior manager who has other duties to address these uh, HR issues. And I'm wondering, what would you suggest with respect to the executive? Because most executives, they're running the shop, they're busy doing a million other things. Their boards may not necessarily know the day-to-day work and be able to give them an honest evaluation of their performance. So how would you suggest that board members evaluate executives? Ah, that's a great question. Uh, let's start with the your premise, which is spot on. Executive directors should get performance evaluations just like every other mm-hmm. employee does. And if that's not happening, the executive director should go to the board chair uh, or someone on the board and say, you know, I think I need this. Mm-hmm. And then put together a structure that's appropriate. It may be that the system that you use for the rest of the employees is not appropriate, or it may be fine, but you need more than that. There you can have a, typically a small committee of the board will provide the review to the executive director. Perhaps it's just the board chair, but in my view, it's usually better if there are one or two other people involved. It should be written just the way a performance evaluation for other employees should be written. It should be both retrospective, that is, looking at the executive director's performance over the past year, but it should also be prospective. Where do we want to go? And that's part of the board's responsibility, isn't it, is setting the goals for the organization moving forward. And that will depend on the particular needs of the organization. Is the critical need fundraising? Then let's talk about how the executive director is going to contribute to that. Is the critical need expanding the mission, that is, the people who are served by our organization? All right, let's talk about that. But that is the responsibility of the board, and then that will affect the evaluation of the executive director by saying this this is what we are looking for you to accomplish over the course of the next year. Uh, and then when the, that year is up, you can look back and see whether those goals were met. And would you recommend that board members talk to employees that report directly to the executive director for a performance review? That's a difficult question. You don't want to stir up problems. Uh, And you do not want to create, in my opinion, you don't want to create an environment where employees are going directly to the board whenever they have something on their mind. That's Mm -hmm. not a healthy situation. The board members do want to have contact with the other employees. They do want to know what's going on, not just through the executive director. But the board's job is to set the mission of the organization and to hire the executive director. The executive director should be the one hiring those other employees, and it needs to be clear that the executive director is their boss or their alt, their mm-hmm. indirect or direct boss. Uh, so you don't want to 
uh, interfere with that relationship or undermine it. But under certain circumstances, yeah, it might be appropriate for the board to get input from other employees, but I would be careful about how it's done to make it clear that this is a positive thing. Mm -hmm. It is not because the board is sneaking around behind the back of the executive director. Another way to do that is have the executive director ask. In large for-profit organizations, there's something called the 360 review, uh, and the employee who's being reviewed has a hand in selecting who's going to provide feedback. Uh, And that's not the universe of people who will provide feedback. The person's boss may also say, you know, well, I want to add these three other people or something like that. One way to avoid the sense that the board is undermining the executive director is have the executive director involved in the selection of the people who are going to provide feedback to the board. And then What's the feedback going to be? What are the questions that they're going to be asked? Uh, That should be collaborative as well. So we have the handbook, we have job descriptions, we have performance evaluation and salary letters. I'm going to switch tack a little bit here because I know inevitably as an executive, we've run into the sometimes... Sometimes we have the unpleasant task of having to terminate an employee, and I want to talk about how we make sure that we position ourselves in such a way to not open ourselves up to lawsuits. There are many different reasons for the need to terminate an employee, and so I'm going to talk about them separately because the the answer to your question is a little different for each one. Uh, If the problem is poor performance and the first time you're telling the employee they're not performing well is when you're telling them they're terminated, you've already made a lot of mistakes and created a lot of problems for yourself that it's going to be hard to undo. So all the things I've talked about so far should lead to the point that when you're sitting down to have the difficult conversation with the employee and tell them that their job is over, They should already understand that there have been performance problems, that you've been honest with them about those performance problems and about what they need to do to improve. They may not agree, and that's okay, but they won't be taken by surprise. That should be the goal. Uh, I will say, in general with employees, don't lie. Be honest. Even if you think you are being nice, by telling them that the reason they're being terminated is uh, because, well, we just can't afford your position anymore. If that's not true, and ultimately you're going to replace them, don't tell a lie. Tell them that it's performance-based. I sometimes quote my southern mother who had a saying that you should always tell the truth. You just don't always have to be telling it. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be harsh. You don't have to cite every single example of how they fell down on the job, but you do need to tell them that this is because their performance is just not satisfying the needs of the organization. A second reason for termination would be the layoff. And a layoff, can that's a job elimination. And that can happen either because the mission of the organization changes and that employee's skill set no longer fits with the shifted mission of the organization. It can also be economically driven. The organization is in financial difficulties, and as much as you would like to keep the employee, you can't afford to keep everyone. You may be letting that employee go because out of your whole workforce, they're the weakest link, Mm -hmm. and 
you may need to be honest about that, but once again, not be harsh about it. And I would say in both the performance-based termination and the layoff, don't dwell on the reasons for the termination. You need to be honest. You need to answer the employee's question, but try to get them moving forward. Try to start talking about transition, how they're going to transition their responsibilities if they are transitioning them, whether you want them to keep coming into the office to help transition or whether you want them to stay home and you'll arrange to get their belongings to them or allow them to come in and get them. But start talking about moving forward. If you're able to provide a severance package, start talking about that and what the severance package is going to entail, what sort of agreement or uh, release you'll want from them in return, what benefits continuation may be offered. Try to get them looking forward. Don't dwell on the reasons for the termination. The third reason for terminations is misconduct. Uh, what's in the news now, of course, is sexual misconduct, but it can be financial impropriety. It can just be excessive absenteeism mm -hmm. or tardiness. Whatever it is, even with misconduct, I always counsel employers, don't fire people on the spot. Mm -hmm. Give them an opportunity. Confront them with the reason they're being terminated. Give them an opportunity to respond. Whatever their response is, take a breath, say thank you very much, go back to your office, have them go home, and then make your decision the next day, even if you know what that decision is going to be. Mm -hmm. Just take a breath, but always give the employee an opportunity to respond to whatever the reason is. But then, if the reason is misconduct, you have to say, that's it, you're terminated, and you have to stick to your guns. Termination decisions are never easy, but I would say you have to have, if you're sitting in the big chair even if it's a big chair at a small organization, you have to have the courage to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not working and the employee needs to leave, you're not doing anybody any favors by prolonging it. I just had a client a year ago who they hired a guy whose resume told them that he was perfect for the job. It turned out he wasn't. And they tried for 90 days, they tried to make, make it fit, and they realized finally this is just not going to work. And they terminated him. Now, he went and got a lawyer, and the lawyer uh, filed a lawsuit. But when I sat down with the lawyer, I just looked him in the eye and said, what, how could, what would you have told this company to do differently? Your guy just, it was a bad choice. It was a bad fit. They weren't doing him any favors by continuing it, and they weren't doing themselves any favors. And ultimately, the guy realized that he didn't really have a case right. uh, because the employer had made the hard decision. Yeah. Uh, nice guy. They felt bad about it, but they knew they weren't doing anybody any favors by not making the hard decision. Yeah. That, like they say, it's show business, not show friends. Well, fair enough. <laughs> that, that's a, that, is, that is a great way to put it. And once again, you don't have to be harsh. You don't right. have to be mean, but you do need to be honest. Do you know that oftentimes executives will forestall the inevitable termination because they are afraid of retaliation or a lawsuit. What do you do in that situation if somebody comes back and, and tries to sue you for a wrongful termination? If you've got a legal claim, you need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I realize that's a scary prospect for not-for-profits. But one of my uh, mentors said, somebody who tries to handle 
a legal claim without a lawyer is like somebody who puts on boxing gloves and goes into a dark room uh, and tries to, where the other guy can see you, but you can't see him. Mm-hmm. You're going to get clobbered. Now, how, there are other there are ways for even a, a small not-for-profit that is trying to put all of their money into the mission of the organization can, can get a lawyer. Your board members, you may have lawyers on the board. They may not be qualified to handle an employment claim, but they probably know people who can and who, are, who will do it either for free or for very low cost. If you don't have access to someone like that, your colleagues in the not-for-profit world may be able to refer you to someone. The, in New York City, the New York City Bar Association has a, a very elaborate referral system of lawyers who are willing to take on pro bono cases for not-for-profits. And if they're interested in the mission of your not-for-profit, that can turn into a longer-term relationship as well. And they're through it, depending on the type of not-for-profit you're talking about whether it, the mission is education or health care or hunger. There may be other similar organizations. There may be a network of organizations, an official network, that can help you locate a lawyer. But you really shouldn't try to handle a legal claim without some legal advice. So in that case, though, what, what are some of the actions that a lawyer might suggest? Well, you, Obviously, you, it's dependent on the situation, but... Whenever there is a claim of discrimination, the immediate reaction of the person accused of discrimination is going to be somewhat emotional because they are being accused of something that society tells us and that we all think is pretty bad. And they think they've done the right thing, that they're helping the organization by getting a poor performer out or by terminating someone who was committing misconduct. And they are going to be a little bit emotional about it. That's okay. One reason a lawyer can be helpful is the lawyer can help separate emotion from what really is the mission of the organization and how do we advance that mission. And at some point, there may be a difficult decision that needs to be made that, that uh, even though you feel like you're sacrificing a principal or the, or the former employee is completely in the wrong, if I can resolve this case for a relatively small amount of money, then maybe that's the best thing for the organization because mm-hmm. a lawsuit is expensive. Even if you're getting your legal representation for free, it's distracting. The people, you and the others who have to spend time on that lawsuit, are not spending time advancing the goals of the organization. And so you may need to make a difficult decision. And not always. So there are certainly cases where the principle is important enough mm-hmm. uh, to the future of the organization that you just have to suck it up and put the time in and put the energy and emotion into it and litigate the case. And once again, a lawyer can help you make that judgment, can help you realize how much money is at stake here, Is what's the principle that's at stake here, is the principle bigger than this one uh, situation, and how do you strike the appropriate balance for the organization? Your board can also help you with that and probably needs to if it comes to that. But in the first instance, the executive director or whoever the senior person is who's responsible for managing the case needs to work with the lawyer to find the appropriate balance. Gosh, that's so much information. And I'm sure it's very helpful for my listeners. But as much as I love you, Chip, 
you're not the person I want to talk to. Because <laughs> if I have to talk to you, it means things have gone uh, sideways. Uh, uh, you have no idea how many people <laughs> feel that way and talk to me that way and how many phone calls that are, my, the initial response is, uh-oh, now what? Right. Uh, but uh, look, it, it's, uh, I enjoy what I do. I particularly enjoy doing it for people who are committed to the mission of their organization and helping them get this stuff out of the way so they can advance the mission of the organization is important. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Chip. Really appreciate it. Thank you.